Welcome to Alaska's Political Pipeline. I am David Bernkoff. You are? I am Rebecca Polshin. And what are we doing here? Oh, we are so busy. We have so much to talk about. So much to talk about. Uh. But first of all, we are a podcast for all things political Mm -hmm. in Anchorage and in Alaska. We've got a whole bunch of things, including something breaking right now as we're recording. We have learned more details will come. But we've learned that finally, the issue over the assembly wanting to get documents on the mayor's investigation into how the Joe Gerace mess happened, that's finally going to court. So just a quick recap, Joe Gerace was the health director. He got fired because why? Well, he resigned first because he... uh falsified his resume and it became a huge thing he even is uh i'm oh, sorry i shouldn't have said fired he resigned <laughs> yeah he resigned for a, but but you know the the complaint was that his resume is just completely fabricated enough so that there's like um you know uh the feds want their money back and for some lying about your rank in the alaska um military and then the other complaint was that you know the 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 health director, or not the health director, but the um, HR, Kelly Shab- uh, Shabaka, HR director. HR director, he had said he'd only had a day to vet that resume, right. you know, because the whole thing was like, this person's in charge of all this money. This was happening during COVID. So why wasn't Joe Drace's resume better looked over? And it was very quickly done, and he was appointed, and then it came out that he had allegedly exaggerated or made up things. He was fired. Excuse me, I keep saying that wrong. He resigned. Then the mayor said he would conduct an investigation, mm-hmm. his staff, into how this all happened. The investigation is complete. The assembly wanted to see it. The mayor said it's a personnel issue, mm-hmm. refused. There have been subpoenas issued in the past, rejected. Again, they issued a subpoena, the assembly. Reject it again. Now we'll see what happens, but it's going to court finally after weeks of threats. Because the whole problem being the mayor keeps saying this is a personnel issue so that you can't talk about this. But really what they want to see is the investigation into the administration itself of how had they vetted that resume. Right. So not asking for any personal information. or And, And the assembly members have said over and over that they would withhold the personnel Mm-hmm. issues information that that should be kept out of the public eye but this is about how did this happen right. not his resume per se so we will leave that for now because we don't know a whole lot more right now but let's talk about a story that we worked on just this week that's really interesting and that's the issue of the abortion-inducing drug. Help me pronounce it now. Oh, geez. Now, you had me... Mephipristone. I, oh, right? fantastic. We worked on that so We worked long. on it for forever. <laughs> <laughs> and still, it's a hard one. And here in Alaska, it's interesting because we have a unique situation. Mm. The Attorney General, Treg Taylor, said, no, even if it's the FDA says pharmacies can distribute it, you can't distribute it in Alaska because there's a state statute, right? Saying that abortions have to be done in with a physician right. or a physician-type person. Right. Medical personnel Medical have personnel. to administer the pill. Planned Parenthood told us something different. They said what? They had said, no, this is a privacy issue, which Alaska is very much a state where privacy is a first concern. Because of the state constitution. Right. So... It's very important, as the Attorney General's office pointed out to us, that this 
has not been adjudicated yet. There has never been a decision on this particular issue that the state constitution overrules the state law on abortion pills. Mm -hmm. And but, it's fascinating, too, because, sorry, because, you know, the, this, this case, you know, is in Texas at this point, and, and so in front of a very, very conservative judge, um, and the issue is saying, essentially, the FDA, they would overrule the FDA and say that they are wrong and that it should not be sent and sold in places like Wal uh, Walgreens or and CBS anywhere. or anywhere. This yeah. judge has the, he is considering saying that the FDA completely mm -hmm. overstepped its bounds and the drug should never have been approved in the first place. Mm -hmm. So that would overwhelm whatever might happen in Alaska. But there was a very interesting development that you and I were talking about this week. Also a conservative state, North Dakota, their Supreme Court ruled on this very issue of constitution versus state law. And I think it surprised some people because the North Dakota Supreme Court said, no, the state constitution gives individuals a right to make decisions about their own medical treatments, and that includes using a drug like mefepristone. And so they overruled the state law and said the anti-abortion measure that was going to outlaw that wasn't, uh, wasn't okay. So that has zero impact on what happens in the Alaska Supreme Court if it were to ever get there. It's interesting that it happened mm -hmm. in a conservative state, and I think that surprised people. So, moving on, another state issue. The governor waded into culture wars, although he <laughs> denies he, he waded. He denies he waded. What happened with, with his bill Ooh. about a parental rights bill is what he called it. Yes. So, it's interesting to note that he... he is very much calling it parental rights and nothing else, and has come out very strong saying he never mentioned trans students. Um, but this does affect trans students. Um, but he has, you know, on Twitter, he's come out kind of in a scathing, terse video saying that he never brought that up, that it's just parents and the parents parental rights over their children so that the school, before they can just change, before they can go with the student's request to be called he, to ch change their pronoun, they would have to run it by the parents first. But also, it does say, his proposal says, that um, locker rooms and uh -huh. bathroom facilities would have to be used according to your birth, according to your sex at birth. Right. So that definitely is targeting, I won't say targeting, it's definitely potentially affecting transgender mm -hmm. students and faculty. Mm -hmm. It would change... It would set up restrictions on who could use bathrooms, even if you had gone through or were going through some sort of surgery or therapy, you would have to stick with the bathroom based on the sex you were born with, is my understanding of it. Right. That. And, the, you know, one of the things I've also heard people talking about is the idea that parents would be notified more for things. So that would also include... Um, S although it stops at saying if unless abuse was present, but it would include the parents in conversations if it, if a kid was to go to a teacher or something and say, "Hey, I, f I think I might be gay, and I'd like to talk about this with you." That that teacher then um, would need to inform the parents, or the parents could sue the school. One of the things you've been trying to get are actual statistics from the school districts. This has been ongoing for forever now. What is it you're trying to find out? I want to know um, how many people this would affect. You know, um, 
are people complaining? You know, what is the basis for this? Is there a large complaint? Are there a lot of trans students? Are there, you know, um, what is what does the what does all the different communities that are within the school district who and what are they? And so, really, the question that we can't answer yet that we are trying to answer is. Is this a problem right. in search of a solution, or is it a solution in search right. of a problem? Like, are there are there complaints about there about students using the a different bathroom than than what they were born for the gender they were born with? And are how many students would this impact? Is it none? Is it a hundred? What yeah. is it? How know? many students are changing their pronouns right. without the knowledge of their parents? That would be an interesting thing yeah. to know. But I do want to read one quote here from the governor. And it says, he said, this parental rights bill, as he calls it, this is really reaffirming parental rights and that parents of these children have the right to know what their children are doing in school. And on one level, that seems quite evident and like you couldn't argue with it. But there is a counter argument that not every parent would necessarily react in a healthy way. If mm -hmm. they found out certain things about what their kids were doing or saying, and, and I, that it's such a tough issue. I, I don't underestimate being the parent of a couple of kids, and you're a parent. I'm too. As a parent, you do want to know what's going on with your kids. It's a f it's a very interesting argument, and I think I can't remember the lawmaker now who said it, but a lawmaker in Juneau said. Um, uh, not a lawmaker from Juno, but just who's working in Juno right now, had said, my kids are my property. And so I think that's just kind of some, the way the family thinks those relationships should be. Should it be, I hope my children speak with me, or they will speak with me because I am their parent. So it's, it's, it's just kind of a family structure thing. That's a great way to put it. And I think glibness on this issue doesn't serve anyone well. At least yeah. to, most of all us, we should not be glib with it. One last thing about the governor and education. He also simultaneously proposed a bill that would grant bonus money to teachers in an effort to uh, get more teachers to want to work in mm -hmm. Alaska schools. But not increase the BSA. Right. No more money per student. Right. And that's also controversial because that's what a lot of legislators would like to see. Yeah. And the union had said, you know, I think they, they still are kind of mulling it over, but the, they were interested in the idea of a bonus, but I think they definitely want the uh, BSA to be increased. All right. Well, that covers most of what we want to talk about in terms of state politics, but we're going to shift with in a different direction with a different person to talk just about the Willow Project now. Joining me now is our state political reporter, Elena Sims. And Elena is going to help us wander through the Willow Project. And the, where we need to start wandering is, where is Willow? I, I realized that I, I didn't really know exactly, but it's way, way up north, right? Exactly. If you look at a map of Alaska, it is quite literally at the top. In the Beaufort Sea. Yeah. Now, we had a big development this week. Uh, maybe it was anticlimactic, but the administration, the Biden administration, approved a somewhat scaled back version of Willow, correct? The project now is down to three pads and a few other aspects have been scaled back. But ultimately, they did approve the Willow project. And by 
pads, that doesn't mean three wells. That means three areas where they can drill. So what was the reaction, the political reaction here in the state to the approval? In Alaska, overwhelmingly, it seemed as if the Willow Project was quite popular. The Alaska State House and Senate unanimously, as far as I know, supported the Willow measure. Um, we All of our elected officials nationally. The entire congressional delegation. Right. And the governor, obviously. He seemed a little surprised because he had put out some communication saying that he thought they were the Biden administration might not approve the three drilling areas, but they did. So he was happy about that, but not happy about an accompanying restriction on other drilling. What was that about? Well, first, I would point out when we're talking about the broad political support in Alaska, everyone that I spoke with in the days leading up to Willow said that they felt like the decision could go either way. From the trustees of Alaska to Earth Justice, which are the two primary agitators at this point filing lawsuits against the Willow decision now that we have it. But also people that supported the project, like Governor Dunleavy, as you pointed out, but also some indigenous groups like the Voice of the Arctic and UPAT group. So people weren't sure what was going to happen. Largely on the political spectrum, they were happy when the decision came down, yes. What about the Native groups, uh, Native Alaska groups? Were they largely happy? The Alaska Federation of Natives put out a statement in response to the Willow decision that said, The Willow Project bolsters U.S. energy security at an important time when we are trying to raise the urgency of investing in critical needs that are arising because of the aggression in Russia. And... Then another group that we spoke with, which was the Voice of the Arctic in Upiats, um, their president, Nagaru Kotrek, came by our station. And he had a really interesting point to make that surprised me. He pointed out that his ancestry has lived off the land for thousands of years in northern Alaska, for longer than the United States of America has existed, for longer than most Western nations have existed. And he said that he wouldn't do anything to the land or the environment that he thought would threaten his ability to continue to live off the land and do subsistence harvesting. That is interesting, especially I found that a lot of people I spoke to in the lower 48, especially the environmentally active people, oppose this. And when I told them that Native Alaska groups were largely in favor of it, they seemed surprised by that. But that's probably because they don't understand Alaska politics. And on this measure, Alaska politics seemed very united, maybe surprisingly united to people who aren't from Alaska. But that doesn't mean everyone was happy. As you noted, there were immediately lawsuits filed, correct? So far, two major lawsuits have been filed. Both of the two were on behalf of a number of different advocacy groups. The first one was filed by the trustees of Alaska, and the second one was filed by Earth Justice. And one of the things that you wanted to really point out here is just because the overall project has been approved doesn't mean construction's ready to start now. There's a lot of work that still has to happen. Exactly. We talked to Kara Moriarty, who is the president and CEO of the Alaska Oil and Gas Association. And 
Predictably, she was very happy with the Willow decision, and it's something they've supported and worked on for years. And the point that she really made to me when I interviewed her was there will be hundreds and hundreds of permits that have to go through to actually handle the nuts and bolts of the project to actually get it off the ground. Did you hear anything from her or from others as to an expected start date of construction? I didn't. I have read some criticism uh, online and op-eds and editorials that it's possible this will take so long that by the time it is producing the 180,000 barrels a day that ConocoPhillips says it could do, by the time they get to max production, oil oil will be so outdated, it'll be obsolete. Well, that is... That would be a, an interesting irony after all of this political back and forth because of the necessity to permit and how complicated it is to build up there that you could end up with a project that has no value by the time it's ready to start pumping oil. That leads me to a different question, something else you wanted to talk about, which is this issue of Alaska and its place in the world economy and how this fits into the broader picture of a state that has built so much of its financial future on on natural resources, particularly oil, and how that threatens a whole lot of things in this state in the future. The comparison that I make in my head is Alaska is to oil and gas like West Virginia is to coal, um, and you have to live there to experience it and fully understand it. Uh, I want to share with you a quote that Dan Robinson, who's a chief researcher um, in the state of Alaska and works, and he testified in front of the Senate Finance Committee yesterday. And in his testimony, he said, the balance sheet of Alaska history is simple. One Prudhoe Bay is worth more in real dollars than everything that has been dug out, cut down, caught or killed in Alaska since the beginning of time. And he was citing Terrence Cole, who's an Alaska historian. But does that mean that the people who are generally in favor of drilling and mining think that that can continue? Or is there a realization that it's okay still today, but maybe not so much tomorrow? I think the reality is in Alaska, the state economy is like a three-legged stool. And we have oil, we have federal spending, and then other export industries. Uh, tourism, mining, fishing, air cargo. Um, And this is something that Brett Watson, who's a faculty member at University of Alaska Anchorage and is a researcher for the Institute of Social and Economic Research, this is something that he's articulated as well in testimony to the legislature. So I don't know how environmental concerns fit into that pyramid. Realistically, thinking about the energy demands that the state of Alaska has, that the entire nation has, especially given the recent events abroad in Ukraine. From your reporting, do you think there's an understanding or an acceptance that whatever happens with Willow, whatever happens with other projects in the future, that Alaska is going to have to come to terms with the idea that the oil business is a declining business, or is it still a question of whether that's really going to happen or not? 
I don't think Alaska will come to terms with that because if they were to, that would have already happened. Uh, something interesting that I learned yesterday after listening to some testimony in the legislature is how different Alaska's state GDP is from the rest of the U.S. Um, our three biggest sectors are mining, quarrying, oil and gas, transportation, and again, government spending. When compared to the rest of the U.S., those are the three smallest slices in the pie chart. So again, the three largest pieces of our GDP pie chart in the state are the three smallest nationally. So what you're saying is it's understandable that it's hard to walk away from this part of our economy, even though most of the rest of the country has started to move in that direction. I think the future of oil and gas will be Alaska's sort of crucible heading through the rest of 2023 and probably the rest of the century. And how we deal with that changing economy that, as your statistics point out, it's so vital to this state, and yet it's also clear that it's becoming less vital in the rest of the world. It's a very hard uh, issue to face. Having grown up in uh, western Pennsylvania, I saw it when the steel industry started to go south, when your entire economy and identity are around a certain industry or group of industries, that means the whole political structure is based on supporting that. People whose jobs are at stake support it. And it's very difficult to convince people that it might be declining and they need to think about something else. And those reckonings, Detroit has seen that with the auto industry, they are difficult and painful. Another thing to flag is Alaska ranks 50th in terms of job growth over the last decade. So a project like Willow, we know that seasonally it will create a few thousand jobs. It'll be at least 300 permanent full-time jobs. Well, on Alaska's northern slope, 300 full-time jobs, that's a big change. One of the things that strikes me after our conversation today is that because so much of the political structure of this state, the governor, all the elected officials in D.C., the legislators, the local officials, the unions, the chambers, because they are so all in on oil and because it's so important to this state, it must be hard for you as a reporter to find someone who's willing to engage in even this discussion of what do we do after oil. That's a good point. And I think that the that conversation is starting to happen, but in a very muted, rolled back sort of way through things like Governor Dunleavy's carbon management programs, that that could be an off-ramp from fossil fuel reliance. But we're really early in those discussions. You don't get any sense. Let me, this is a question, not a statement. Do you get any sense in your interviews, do any, any of your interviewees on their own raise the issue of this is good for today, but we have to be thinking about tomorrow? I have not heard that in any of my interviews uh, with Republican and Democrat legislators, um, environmental activists, members of the oil and gas lobby, Governor Dunleavy, you name it. Well, I think that's a good place to stop, and that says a lot, doesn't it? I think it does. All right. Well, that's it for this episode of Alaska's Political Pipeline. As always, please like us, follow us, 
do the things necessary to keep this podcast in business, and we will appreciate it. <laughs>